0: I hear you now. First okay. time. Welcome to the Lighthouse Conversations. I'm Hashem Montasser speaking to you from my home in Dubai. Today, I'm joined on the show by Nelio Leone, founder and CEO of Urban Monks, a growth marketing agency based here in Dubai. Before setting up his own company, Nelio has worked as a marketing manager at L'Oreal in Paris. And then he became director of branded Karim, one of the region's few unicorn companies that was bought by Uber last year for over $3 billion. I've had the opportunity to work with Nelio as he did some work for us at the Lighthouse, and I was very interested in his approach to marketing, which seemed analytical and bespoke, and a nice departure, frankly, from the more cookie-cutter approach you encounter in many cases. I caught up with Nelio last week. It was his birthday, incidentally, to learn more about what he's been up to, and how his company is making strides in their endeavor to become a marketing powerhouse. I want to start with something interesting. I was um, doing some research on you and on your background, and I found something very captivating. A lot of people talk about Google and Facebook being obviously these big behemoths that you know, are duopoly and really know everything about us. And I learned from you that our grandmothers... Specifically, Italian grandmothers seem to know even more. Can you tell us a little bit about this? I'm curious whether this is your grandmother, or we should all watch out and be very, very careful going forward with our grandmother.
1: <laughs> so I guess you're talking about the the, the, the talk on on the data privacy that um, that happened, I, I think, um, this uh, this this November. And um, and yeah, I mean, it's it's really funny because. Um, it's true that uh, at least in the southern part of Italy, which I think is pretty much everywhere in the Mediterranean, um, you always have like those grannies and those aunts and those aunties that would know everything about you because they've been like <laughs> following, following you from their balcony since you're like, like you know, three years old and they never lost track of you. So I think that's the real weapon of mass surveillance.
0: There, there go, you know, Google and Facebook and these guys and they're spending billions. Uh, And and all they have to do is go to the southern part of Italy or anywhere, really, and just ask to talk to the nonnas.
1: That's it. And just, you know, just pretty much record all the data about you and talk to your grandmother.
0: (laughs) That's brilliant. And I think it's very true. And I mean, you had said in that TED Talk that you at the beginning were like many of us, frankly, somewhat dismissive of data privacy issues. And then you did kind of a 180 degree turn. Tell us a little bit about this and, and what prompted the change.
1: Of course. And, and honestly, thank you very much for asking. Because I think, you know, um, if there's one thing that really worries me after, after this COVID is really all the awareness about data privacy. And so I'll just give you an example. I think so how how my how did the store really changed. So I was into uh, into marketing and growth for startups. I was working at a, a friend startup in here in uh, in Dubai called the Washman. I was the head of growth. And basically what we managed to do at Washman, we grew it by almost like 7x in 14 months. And we started playing around with a lot of like customer data. And um, the way we played around, we started like really getting strings and strings of data, analyze it, cluster it, and then send a super um, targeted message for a very specific cluster of users. And When we then had this um, whole, you know, in 2017, uh, after the Cambridge Analytica scandal, um, there was like this huge debate. Um, California started to implement the California Act of Privacy. Uh, In Europe, we had the GDPR. And so as, you know, as digital marketers, we started like all kind of like, or growth hackers or growth marketers, we all started like really being kind of anxious on, okay, is our job like, are we ever going to be able to do our job the same way we were doing before? Because with all these restrictions on privacy, and I was the first one of saying like, ah, this whole thing doesn't make sense. The time when you start getting in on Facebook or you start having um, a digital presence, well, you're going to leave digital footprints everywhere. So don't expect, and this, these all services are great, they're free, but of course there's a cost for it. And it's when you accept those terms and conditions, well, it's all your privacy and that it comes at the expense of a privacy. Otherwise these could not ever be free. And this happened when I went to Africa for a a project in Kenya. And I really saw what are the implications of living in a society that, um, where privacy regulations are like, there's no protection for users and privacy regulations. So in Kenya, um, there are uh, companies that actually, where you can pretty much get uh, through an app you can start having an instant loan, um, and by instant loan, it's like super small credit of like twenty dollars, let's say, just to you know, just to spot you during the weekend. But then, when you accept the terms and conditions, not only you accept some interest rates that are like two hundred fifty percent, two hundred thirty percent. Basically, you start spiraling into a debt trap. It becomes horrible because then people start um, gambling to then offset their their loans. And you see also like suicide rates for like $40 or to up to like $140. People kill themselves because then they start to spiral in this debt. And what's really horrible about data privacy is that when you accept the terms and conditions, not only you accept these, these, these interest rates that are like, you know, they are what they are, but because there is no data regulation and data privacy, companies can mine your phone and can start sending to all your contacts through SMS or through WhatsApp um, messages saying that hey, uh, Ashton has a loan with us, help him, or or we're gonna proceed legal actions against him. So imagine in which situation you're put now. That really triggered so much like, like reflection on what really data privacy means. And and from there, that's where I I really took this as a as a wake up moment, as a wake up call to be very mindful. On on how we treat data, how we protect ourselves from uh, from data scraping and all of that, and how we create a society where where you know where, where things don't turn out to be an episode of uh, of blackmail.
0: Yeah, but there's no easy solutions. Right, I'm aware of a company, friends of mine that went to school with me, started a company out of California called Ascent, and one of the things they do is essentially try to protect their they, they develop tools to protect their data. And what happened is interestingly enough, they wind up um, offering their services more to other companies. So it became a B2B. And uh, again, and I want to kind of put this in, in in perspective to the work you do, because ultimately as a marketer, right? Uh, I'm simplifying here a bit, but the job is to help companies like ourselves, for example, if I would come to you, uh, find your target audience and, and connect with them and get to know them as much as possible. So the question is, you know, what's that fine line? Is getting to know them, just having their email uh, address, or is it, you know, stalking them on Instagram to figure out their habits so I can sell them more stuff? You know, I mean, who who sets that line?
1: So I, and I, I've been, honestly, I've been thinking this about a lot, and my perspective comes down to one thing. Um, it should be in our power as users um, to being knowledgeable about what kind of data we're sharing. Today, today, when you accept the terms and conditions of different social media apps or whatever that is, you don't really know what kind of data they're sharing. So basically, I have no visibility. We have no visibility on what we're sharing and what we're not sharing. We have no visibility if companies um, start tracking your, I don't know, your political views if they can cluster you into, into a political bias, and if tomorrow there's like a major, I don't know, uh, political agenda of someone, and then you fall into that category, then you're not safe anymore. And same thing with sexual orientation, same thing with racial. So yeah. like so many different things that they become very tricky. So what I'm saying is that at the moment, there's a lot, a lot of lack, complete lack of transparency in what kind of data big companies have of us. And this is, and this, I think, it's a bit of um, uh, uh, you know of a dark age of data privacy, and I think it's going to come soon uh, to an end.
0: So, just as a very basic an exercise, what can individuals do? I mean, do I turn off my uh, my my settings of uh, geolocating, but then I can't use Google Maps? You know, do I turn off uh, um, entering new apps via Facebook or Google? Well, but then it takes five clicks extra. So if I would come to you as someone who's obviously quite involved in that medium, what would you advise as kind of a basic way to safeguard our privacy without, frankly, making our online interaction extremely difficult?
1: And, and then, you know, there's, um, there's um, uh, Noa Yoa Arari, um, the, the guy that wrote Sapiens and then wrote uh, Ten sure. lessons for the 21st century. And it's exactly the same kind of things that he um, that that he pointed out. To which extent then we balance the trade-off between, uh, I mean, being completely off the grid and your data privacy super secure, uh, it's not it's not a solution. But at least, you know what's really like what what I realized during uh, during this project and after reading and really deep diving into the subject is at least to know and to have that curiosity. To know what kind of data you're really sharing Mm. and then once at least you're aware of what you're sharing and you can read those terms and conditions in diagonal to the extent where you can spot where what kind of things you you agree to and you do not agree to then at least it's already a small step forward and starts by educating yourself and then slowly um also the product will change so the solution there's no short-term solution today there's an increasing so, incremental, step. And, incremental step that comes to education.
0: So you're saying at the very least right now, what we can do as consumers is being educated about what's out there in terms of our stuff online yeah. and how we can safeguard it.
1: Exactly. Okay. And I think, you know, at some point, um, and we were discussing this with, 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 another, with, a, with a collective of, of, of growth, growth hackers, a growth practitioner, that probably like the best thing um, to do would be to, um, have a way to simplify those terms and conditions to really make people simply more aware.
0: Yeah, of course they do it. They do it so that it's kind of buried. Essentially, it's like uh, you know a smart lawyer that's trying to make you sign a prenup or something, and you realize you gave away <laughs> half your life, but you weren't aware of it.
1: Exactly, and I think that comes a lot through through um, how do you say through also uh, legislation that there should be at some point um, regulation on digital products that. For any terms and conditions that you accept, there has to be like a short summary of four or five key bullet points on all the top burning topics, meaning what kind of personal things are, because it has to be super easy that when I open those terms and conditions, I'm not going to stay there and read like, uh, you know, 10 pages document that I'll never read.
0: Now, we haven't planned this, but the day after our conversation, Apple announced exactly that, an easy-to-read highlights page about an app or website's privacy policy, featured along with descriptions in the App Store come September. I want to move to a related subject, Nelio. I mean, um, you call yourself a growth hacker, and growth hacking is obviously a growing and thriving community really, and that's something I fundamentally really believe in, uh, and I have tried to use it in my career, especially over the last five to six years, that everything meaningful takes a really long time. You know, So, so things take time to be built, to be done properly, and one should enjoy that, and in fact, embrace it. So I'm going to just push back here a little bit and say, isn't growth hacking almost go kind of exactly to the opposite of that in the sense that Everything uh, that is online and that is sort of today celebrated, many of those are, let's get there and get there fast. You know, if I have one user, I should be in 10,000, then 1 million within three months. How can I get there? I mean, isn't there something lost there in that process?
1: Yeah, and I agree with you. And that's why, you know, um, I don't like the term growth hacker or growth hacking. It's because it's prone to confusion and uh, compared to the initial... Uh, way that it was really meant. So growth hacking comes from um, a book of Sean Ellis. And since nobody has ever thought of that process before, Sean Ellis came with this, uh, this term growth hacking. That doesn't necessarily mean a shortcut to growth, but it means like going into the detail of what the signals, what the early signals of your product are telling you. And then you develop a, like an iterative strategy on very small data signal. So simply that you're your your whole strategy is more data informed, and it's it's a it's a very fast way, it's a faster way to go to product market fit versus when back then it was coined there was still like the old way of doing marketing where you do a business plan of like twelve months and you spend like a yeah. million dollar and then you open the gates and there's no customers and so people we like so that's why growth hacking came in that is a very lean way to just take small uh, data signals and then build on top of those small data signals. So that's why the term with time it became a bit um, not abused, but it became a bit like oh let like, let's hack it, let's like. But yeah, you you can't honestly like to build something great. There's like you can't really hack it. There's no way. There's no way to hack such such a complex phenomenon like growth.
0: I mean, you you talk a little bit about this, and I was reading one of your articles. I'm gonna simplify here, but you were saying build your audience but don't sell. Um, and I think it's an interesting point because of course we're all selling, I'm talking from a, from a company perspective, something, but there's a way to connect with your audience where it does feel, I don't wanna use the word authentic because I think it's highly overused, but you know, uh, genuine where that connection is built first as opposed to like, I have the data, bam, let me hit him now with the product. People, especially right now, perhaps post-COVID, browsing a lot, maybe not in the mood to be buying as much. So this creates a very interesting platform for many companies because you have larger online base that wants to see stuff, wants to consume, but perhaps don't hit him so hard. Did I understand that right?
1: Yeah, exactly. So it all really goes down to one thing, give first, give value first. So Mm -hmm. what I'm just saying is that when you're building an audience... What you're doing is simply you're giving value to the user. Then mm. it's not like an immediate return for you right now, but you're giving them value before you get that.
0: Can you give us just for the sake of the audience some specific examples of giving value?
1: Yeah, definitely. So let's say, for instance, if you have, uh, um, if you if you have your own business, like the Lighthouse. The Lighthouse is is an amazing um, social lounge, uh, very creative place here in in Dubai that. And right. imagine, so right now what you're doing uh, with, with, with your podcast is not necessarily for people to buy, but you're giving value to that same community right. that you want to serve. This is, this is just a very, very simple example. And you can do this at a small scale like we're doing here, but then you can do it as well like a huge scale, like with million and million and million of people. I can tell you something. For instance, take one company like Huda Beauty, okay? Huda Beauty, Huda didn't start monetizing our audience for years and years and years. And she started monetizing, like, very late in the process. So before it was not even a company, all she was doing, she was just taking, like, you know, videos of herself, you know, answering very important questions that a lot of females out there were asking themselves. And she was getting, giving, like, a very, uh, like, she was giving value before she would actually actually take value. Sure. She was giving expertise, her expertise as a makeup artist before she could actually take money from those people, right. she was giving back, and these are the companies that I believe right like now they're very modern, and these are the company that you know that in general I see that you know have a great span uh, in front of them, simply because they're they're there for something that is much deeper than um, than than a transaction. They're there for like a meaning and for a purpose. Because otherwise, if you don't have that purpose going on and that purpose that you give to the community, you can't go like. Five years or three years or two years without, without necessarily monetizing that audience just because you want to give, so I feel, I feel this is where really the, 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 the most beautiful companies are are people like the, these are companies that build a community before necessarily monetizing that community of users or, or whatever that is.
0: That makes a lot of sense, and this gets us to uh, some of your current work. I mean, um, you know, and we we had the pleasure to work with you for for some time at the Lighthouse. And I found working with you, honestly, extremely inspiring. And I'm not just saying that because I have you here. Thank you. Mostly for the reason that the work felt more of a give and take and not as simply just sort of, you know, Nelio, I have this problem. Although we did. I mean, we were trying to figure out um, some of our growth funnels, if you will, um, especially how do we convert kind of an online, offline channel because the Lighthouse has both a physical space, the restaurant and store, and also a very active online presence. And we were trying to create this online, offline efficient tool. And you helped us a lot with recognizing how to do that. One of the interesting things I found working with you was that you didn't simply just sort of, and you could have said, you know what, Hash, give it to me, I'm going to build it for you or help you or uh, create the tools, but you actually try to pass on that knowledge to us. So that during that period when we work together, we came out of it uh, with building blocks that frankly helped us over and above that period when we worked with you, which I found found personally, someone who doesn't have a digital marketing background, um, very, very powerful and very useful. And um, that is obviously at the core of what you're doing Kearney. So you have your own agency, of, for lack of a better word, where you help companies that want to grow digitally. Right now, um, what is there a specific angle you are going for here? Because I think it's it's not a secret to say that a lot of companies, I can only speak about the Middle East and certainly about Dubai, are frustrated with the services they're getting. You have companies that are traditionally PR companies. I don't want to be mean, but I'm going to use the word masquerading as digital agencies. Whereas really their knowledge is, is kind of old school, nothing wrong with that, but old school, more traditional PR. And then you have a bunch of companies trying to do it purely digitally, but a lot of them really not having that kind of knowledge. So I'm sure you see this far more than us, and you understand that there's a, a, um, um, an opportunity for a company like yourself, like yours. But what, what are you bringing to the table that's new and that's fresh that would let someone like ourselves or anyone else come and work with you?
1: Yeah, so this is a very good question, and you know, um, it really goes back to to the purpose of why I started this this agency, uh, this um, consultancy agency uh, of growth that, uh, called Urban Months. It's basically, it really started from one thing, is that when I was a marketing um, director, I started working with agencies, and what I really saw was I couldn't really find the right fit for us. To be honest, there was, I was really motivated in creating the first boutique agency with one passion that is passion of like really doing some edgy and very qualitative work. Mm. So that's why what the, 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 way, the way we operate. So we operate as a collective of uh, now we're like in total um, 15 individuals and we work as a collective. And all we do is like we scout very interesting projects to work with and then we put them on the table and we bring like different experts based on the different expertise. And we work as a community to problem solve it like it was a Lego.
0: So just to understand, so these 15, yeah. uh, you, are, you are kind of loosely, uh, loosely associated. This is not all part of one company.
1: So they're all part of Urban Monks. as, um, okay. as Ur- We call them the monks. Uh, but all of them are um, top growth professionals. That, were from, that come from vetted communities. So
0: it's a collection of freelancers, essentially, that work
1: together. Yes, it's a collection of freelancers that work together um, as a service agent. Basically, the difference, um, like a single plumber and then a contractor company. And Urban sure. Monks functions as a contractor's company. So we collect the best growth professionals and then we find the challenges that we're excited to solve and right. to give really that quality of work out there because what we really super motivated and what really like the real passion is basically creating something that is very edgy and that we can push out the edgiest forms of marketing out there with digital channels. Um, And it's the same as if you think of, let's say, um, architectural um, boutique company. Um, Basically, you can can find tons of that and you can find very cheap, you can find super expensive. What we think is like, we are sort of boutique growth architects of the best growth architects out there that want to build the craziest and play with, the, with, with, with all these digital tools at our um, disposal to really solve exciting challenges that come in terms of market.
0: And give us some example of what do these guys do? So like if I give you a project today and you put five of these guys on my project or girls, what are their five like one, it does what? Performance marketing, one does what? I mean, give me, give me some specific examples.
1: Sure, of course. So let's say for instance, the first thing that we would do, so there's always um, growth architect. So that would really strategize the full engine. So how do you, how do you create, how do you map out that, that growth engine to understand really when a user touches your brand, how he gets retouched again. And once you get touched once, then you get dragged into uh, like a maze of, um, of of really amazing things that touches you in terms of marketing. So once you see one ad, then you wanna understand more Then you get touched with content, then we get touched with email. So that really multi-channel approach. Then we would go and find the different experts in those different side of the engine. So in order to increase the reach and to really go um, increase the reach and then increase conversion, we go to like the top of the best of performance marketing people. And I was, I was shocked because sometimes, you know, I would call and say like, I'm sorry, it's really late in in Australia where you live. I said, no, no, no. This is my happy place. This problem. I'm like, I really want to solve this. And then we go into also the creative aspect. So we work with the really super cool creative um, individuals, creative uh, designers that are in the States and they, that are really passionate about their craft. So, what we're really looking is for all these uh, these individuals that want to turn their craft and elevate it into art. We want to elevate marketing, not only in terms of the results, but also in terms of the deliverable itself. And on top of that, as an agency, quote unquote agency, we also provide that learning experience for our clients if they're interested. Like you said, we would never go to, uh, to a meeting of just saying, oh, this is our status update, and." This is, no, we are going there because we really want you to get out of that as if you were like, you know, you've seen something so new and so, and that you've learned something uh, that you're actually excited to, and you're looking forward to your next meeting with us. So it's not just like, oh, let's just this update and we're going to do this. No, during these calls, you learn with us because we're going to share all the key learnings and we're going to digest it and put it to you so that you elevate as well yourself. And then even when you're not working with us anymore, you still have those building blocks.
0: On average, how long is that period? So from beginning, on average, when you work with a company on such a project, uh, what's the typical time frame?
1: So the typical, so we've been around now for like one year and four months. And we've had clients since we opened, you know, since, it, since, we, since I started myself as a, I uh, started the beginning as a, just my own, own freelancer and then i started really venturing out and building that sort of created uh, creative creative cloud um and so since then we have like two clients that stayed with us since the since the beginning and then the average i would say it's like six uh, six to seven months okay
0: and and does it start with a few months and then grow or is it from the beginning that you kind of know like this is how
1: long it's going to take from the beginning in general we know how long it's going to take. So in general, we we start with the with, with the first uh, phase, like the first phase of the project, that in general is like uh, three to four months, uh, and then we generally do it in two phases. So the first one is really we understand we we, we do the 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 strategy, the implementation, and then the second phase is what we call the scale up phase. It's where really we blitz scale, where we turn the engine to like sixty percent, and then clients that stay with us longer than are going to see that engine going faster and faster because it's a sort of diesel. You don't, you can't start, the, like your growth engine, it's not like 100% capacity and capability from day one. You need to warm it up and then just like see it grow. Yeah, and where, where do you rate
0: us as a region, specifically let's say Dubai and the UAE, in terms of let's call it digital sophistication. So from one to 10, if the US is probably close to 10 in terms of product sophistication, knowledge, where would you rate this part of the world
1: well it's very uh, it's a very interesting question because um i think there's two different aspects right um when we're talking about digital sophistication and one is really the ability to um so there's the, the technical aspect i think in terms of technical aspect you see some some good uh, some very good uh, talents out here especially because in terms of technicalities you have neighboring India where that have like amazing engineers and amazing, um, you know, amazing digital practitioners because they're very advanced in their, in their craft. The biggest um, challenge that I, that I find here is really that sweet spot between technicality and creativity. This is what here is really missing in this region at the end of the day, especially with all the work that we're doing. At urban Max, is not to become like we would never uh, claim to be the most technical um digital comp- digital agency out here and we're not the most creative one because there's like the creative industry here is a bit uh, it's it's difficult in the us for instance you'll see like a lot like wellington media and there's like so many different different media agencies that really captured so well that internet intersection between being very creative and very
0: technical. I agree with that. I think that is, uh, when I look at our work at The Lighthouse or other projects I work on, that is typically what's what's lacking. I agree with you. So when we look today, for example, in our online presence, we want to create really good uh, quality product, which means someone that's very good at creating content, interesting design, really captive quality product, but then you also need the growth engine and the technical aspects of it. Exactly. how do I disseminate this product once I have it. And we yep. found exactly to your point that with people who've reached out to, whether it's agencies or, or individuals, freelancers, they have one or the other. So we have people yeah. that were maybe very good at helping us in content creation, people that were very good at helping us with potentially um, kind of, you know, uh, marketing or, or performance marketing, but not the two. And I think if you at Urban Monks are able to have a loose collective of individuals that provide both services to clients and really go deep and understand the client's needs, I think you have potentially gold in your hands.
1: Yeah, and this is exactly, and this is the exact positioning that we, that we were constantly fighting. And I mean, right now we're still kind of early, early day, sure. uh, early stages because it's been like one year, but... We, like in one year, we already had that super strong product market fit because by combining um, that creative element with that super technical element as well, we've seen some work that we really believe these are case studies. And I can tell you in the first year uh, of business, like in this first phase of, of, of Urban Monks, it's more, again, more about giving value than taking value because what we do is like we're collecting case studies. And now we now I think we've got seven solid case studies and we our, our north star metric is to get to 10 to 12 really kick ass case studies and this is and because we want to prove that point that technical and and beautiful can come together. So what's our motto is a sort of like creativity that converts into sales or into
0: something. And, and what makes you tick? If yeah. you look at three, four, five years from now, I mean, are you looking to be the largest player in the region? Are you looking to be on every, I was going to say uh, a magazine cover, but magazines don't exist anymore. So maybe every website, a landing page, are you looking to be fabulously rich and live off a yacht? all of the above, because that's every, every entrepreneur and every founder is really motivated. I find by a series of, of quite unique personal circumstances that make them wake up in the morning. And despite, frankly, the shit that hits them sometimes still go on. So what makes you keep going and where do you see this going?
1: What keeps me going? So um, again, what, what really, um, what really excites me is the, I'll be very honest. Like, What really excites me, Please. at least right now, in this moment, yes. is the amount of yes. learning. Because working with them, uh, having that freedom of selecting the people you can work with, it's a privilege. Um, I've yes. been an employee my whole life, and um, I couldn't really choose uh, who my colleagues were. Who my, I, I needed to report to someone, and you don't really have a choice. Right now, it's amazing because with working with the other urban monks on every call i'm with someone that i really look up to and that before i would pay five thousand dollars a month to either mentor or to help me out to work together so the first thing is really the amount of learning the second thing that really motivates me and as well like Pretty much everybody that works in our in our in, the, in this urban monks creative cloud are all these people that are really passionate about quality work. Again, I bring it back to um, sort of architect company. Like, if we were architects, we would build like really amazing apartments, like super nice finishing that really goes into that passion for the detail and for for that quality finish, both in terms of client experience, but also in terms of real deliverables to sign off brands that are direct to consumer, um, super edgy, super digital, and there's always our name behind it. So we really thought it this way. And, and I think I this see. is what really, really motivates me in the morning. Yeah, so will I live off the yacht and um, have 300 employees and all of that? I don't think so because- Yeah, that would really, be question. I really want this Urban Monks to, to stick to the purpose, the original purpose it has. Uh, it had to be remote first, so not necessarily linked to one location that I need to be in office and it has to come to basically also the, the whole business model. Um, it's not VC-backed or not investor-backed um, simply to really keep, it's optimized for one thing, which is freedom, and independence. This is the core value. So if you're telling me what really keeps me motivated and how do I see myself in five years, I just keep on seeing myself free, where that, that is the vision, where I can really be independent, earn a very decent uh, living, keep on working on exciting projects that uh, make us tick, makes the clients you know, uh, excited, and keep on building that excitement. I remind you, this is recorded.
0: So if in 10 years you're off a yacht
1: with 300 employees,
0: I will send you a copy of the okay, recording, okay. Uh, okay. just letting you know. So, you know, I'm going to hold you to it. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, I think that's that's fair. And you've, you've echoed this to me at, at previous times and I certainly feel the same way. And I think those are obviously high class problems to have, but we are both, I think in that sense, very lucky to be able to, be in in doing things that we really love and are very passionate about, but also make those choices and being able to keep things if we need to, small or niche or, and just basically to your point exactly, I feel very strongly about quality being a very important point. So if I'm going to be working with people, the quality has to be very high and the level of interaction, the quality of the relationship has to be very high. And if not, it's not worth my time or their time and I move on.
1: And that's why, and I think that's why, you know, um, I think we connected really well while we were working together. And that's why I also personally, before even knowing you, I was uh, very connected to the lighthouse um, because, because you, you actually feel it when people are, 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 are deeply fascinated and deeply motivated by that type of quality, that type of boutique can really, I, I can't really put like proper labels to it, but there is a vibe that you feel and we're we're just excited to you know to get more of
0: that no 100 percent. and that was our target audience i mean you know we were not targeting necessarily people that are just foodies or you know um creative we we wanted people that would appreciate quality even if they are completely unconnected to the physical space they would appreciate the little touches as you said and that could be the menu design it could be something in the salad it could be you know, or maybe a little um, piece of chocolate, or or that comes with a with an espresso, or it could be bigger things. But we felt that there is a community of people that care, and you know, we found out honestly to our pleasant surprise that that is in fact the case. Are they thousands of people? No, but we weren't yeah. looking to get it for that. And frankly, even this podcast and other attempts are all about building those interconnections. I mean. Ninety percent of my guests are people I met at the lighthouse, through the lighthouse, through other friends there, had a meal with, a coffee, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. One one or two more things, Nelio, before I, I let you go and celebrate your birthday pres uh property. I'm sure your wife is is not I'm not I'm gonna have to send her a present, not you. <laughs> I mean the model you're you're pursuing, interesting enough now looks so bang on point. But up until a couple of months ago, pre-COVID, you know, the world wasn't, I mean, some people were, but the norm was not that nomadic existence of no office, uh, connecting with 15 other people, kind of online, without very rarely at least being in one physical space. Uh, So you have had all these habits that you've developed over the last couple of years that now seem like everybody's doing that you obviously could not have anticipated uh what had happened so what made you make these choices even pre covid where frankly it wasn't as uh convenient right because people are still used to wanting to see people in person and holding hands and
1: yeah so i i started uh, back in 2016 um where basically um i realized that um uh, as um, so I always got targeted and I got really into this kind of movement called digital nomads um, where basically I was targeting constantly on my Facebook feeds back then where where I would see these people working off, I don't know, like really amazing places like Bali and whatever. And I was like, how can these guys can even make a living? So before Karim, actually, let me get back to you. Before Karim, I was in corporate and in corporate especially in Paris, like you were extremely, um, they were very, very strict on what time you were in, what kind of sure. time you had to be out and whatever. Karim gave that more flexibility, which I really loved. And then I found in Digital Nomad, I said, okay, how can I scale that flexibility to an extent where I can still make a living without having to go to an office or having to build an office or whatever that is. And I found these guys, these Digital Nomads, and I started to realize how can these guys make a living um, out of just like having a store on Amazon or a store on Shopify. or And so after Karim, I decided to take this kind of really um, this trip to Southeast Asia to start understanding how these digital to reverse engineer um, their business models. And that's when I, I spent like a lot of time uh, in conferences and groups and working spaces to do a sort of cartography of what kind of business models allow these guys to make sure. million dollar businesses sometimes without a physical location without employees on the spot, without investors, just out of a laptop thirty meters from a beach so and that was fascinate me because I said like with just this laptop, I could pretty much like and I can optimize my life for freedom, and this thing made me like like it opened the barrier of possibilities after my, my time in, in Southeast Asia. And then when I came back here to Dubai to, to become head of as Washman, I really understood, I really leveraged that power of lean location independent um, to the next level through different platforms, always like working in different communities and networks. And, you know, and then once I understood the playbook, Thank
0: you for joining us uh, on this episode of Conversations. Agents were produced by Chirac Desai. You can find all our episodes for free in your favorite podcast player, as well as on our website at thelighthouse.ae slash podcast. We'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or reach out to us on Instagram at thelighthouse underscore ae. We'll see you in two weeks.